Earth 2, a world much like our own, yet slightly different. There, young and old have joined forces to battle evil, the newest heroes joining the champions of the Golden Age, presenting Tales of the Justice Society of America. Everybody and welcome back to Tales of the Justice Society of America. I am your co-host Michael Bailey, and I'm Scott Gardner. And we are here this week once again to talk about one of our favorite superhero teams ever, the Justice Society of America. But before we get into that, before we even get into the emails, because we forgot to do this last week, <laughs> um, Scott and I uh, about a week and a half ago actually, I don't want to say hooked up. Because it was ew. That's gross. (laughs) It was hard enough going. Hey, honey, you want to go? You want to go hang out with this guy I met on the internet? Because (laughs) that sounded creepy as well. But uh, my wife Rachel and I got together with Scott and his family. uh, Had a very nice time. Went out to see a Christmas, the Disney movie, A Christmas Carol, uh, which we both liked a lot. And then got to have dinner together at the Cracker Barrel. It was a hell of a lot of fun. It was it was a really oh. good time was had by all. And uh, yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you didn't say hooked up because uh, <laughs> I, I mentioned that night I, I posted something on Twitter. I was like, yeah, Michael Bailey and I, you know, we, we finally got to meet face to face. We went out to a movie, and then uh, a friend of mine, Mr. Smartass, had the point uh, post up on there. Oh, did you hold hands? I was like, you wise ass, but. <laughs> I guess I asked for it the way I posted it up, but no, I was I was just thrilled that we finally got to meet face to face, and uh, and it was a hell of a lot of fun. So let's make it the the first of many get-togethers. Yeah, because we were going to try to have at least like a a face to face meet and greet handshake at Dragon Con. Yeah, but it but, but it never but worked you blew out. Blew me off, man. Well, be honest, you just blew me off, man. I'm the one that called you. Shut up. It was so crazy. I don't know that even if if we'd worked really, really hard at it, I don't know if it would have happened just because I felt like I never sat still for five minutes the whole time we were at that thing. It was just fr- flitting from one event to the next event to place to place. And that, that whole, what was that, four days is just a complete yeah. blur in my mind now. Dragon Con is another reality altogether. Oh, yeah. Especially if you stay at the hotel because you never really enter. Unless you have to go to the Sheraton, you don't even have to leave the building mm-hmm. because all the hotels are hooked now by sky bridges. So, so it's just you're encapsulated, and then that Monday comes and you realize you have to go back to your your real life, right. and it's just like ah. Uh. Well, one of the fellows that I was with at Dragon Con, um, Eric Peterson, you know he he's a veteran of Dragon Cons, and this was my first one. And so in in asking him and bugging him about, you know, what was it going to be like and what could I expect and all that, he finally just said, he goes, well, you know, he goes, you're a, you're a Walt Disney World addict. You know, he goes, you're a veteran of Walt Disney World. He goes, it's really like going to Walt Disney World and staying on property the whole time you're there. He goes, you're, you're transported to that other world and the, and the real world drops away. He goes, it's kind of like that. And I thought, 
No, I don't think so. But then after going, yeah, it's totally like that. Because if you stay in one of the hotels, you really just kind of leave the the real world behind. And, and you live in this surreal world of stormtroopers and naked women. And it's it's crazy. It's so and bizarre. You, and you eat at the food court. Yeah. Which is kind of an unreality <laughs> in and of itself. So Yep. Yeah, it was it was really weird. It's it's basically like kind of living in Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> so there you go. No, uh, no, we we've been trying for since then uh, because you only live an hour away from where I am, and vice versa. Obviously, that was a stupid thing to say. Um, but uh, yeah, I like, I like to point out I like to point out my own mistakes. But yeah, I, I mean, we we've got some definite plans uh, for other things. Uh, basically just to hang out and show off our collections to each other. Most definitely. <laughs> but before that, uh, we got a couple episodes to get through tonight, yep. and you're going to start off with the emails. This <gasps> yeah, time. I'm loving it. I'm loving that we're getting emails. We're getting a ton of emails, and I'm digging it, man. It's it's really nice. It, it's, uh, it's wonderful validation, I believe. So anyway, the first one is from uh, Dion Cottrell. At this point, can we go ahead and just call him uh, a, a regular listener, um, a regular <laughs> yes. contributor? Because I believe we've gotten feedback from from him on, on every show now, so that's great. He says, I appreciate the quick look at a portion of All-Star Comics number 3, especially its breaking of the fourth wall, which is generally not remembered and or mentioned when the issue is discussed. Perhaps it's the English professor in me that enjoys such details entirely too much. Ha! Thanks, too, for reading my email. Until next week, Dion. And then he has a couple of uh, postscript points here. He's got Dr. Midnight's Infrared Vision, All-Star Comics number 59, page 10, comes from his goggles, which originally at least allowed him to see in daylight. You recall that, though blind, he can see perfectly in darkness, but only in darkness. I doubt this reference is the first during the Bronze Age, but either way, the infrared ability was part of the character's power set at the time. I believe he eventually had to give up the infrared-style goggles uh, due to further eyesight deterioration. I think this is addressing a point that I brought up in the story, and, and I appreciate him you know, pointing this out, but I, I knew about all that. My point in that story was he actually used his infrared vision as a lie detector. And that was the point that I was actually calling into question. Uh, was that a power he really had to be able to use? That? I just look at that and go, how, how does that work yeah. exactly? You know. And then, you know, as we pointed out last time around, he uh, he ended up developing like a thermographic style vision. <laughs> so I think they were kind of playing fast and loose with with Doctor Midnight's vision powers. But again, you know. Please feel free to write in and correct me if I'm wrong. If he really did have all these vision powers previously established, I'd love to know about it. Because while I think Dr. Midnight's an awesome character, I honestly don't know all that much about him. I just know his basic origin and gimmick, you know, which is he's blind, but he sees in the dark. I mean, that's pretty much all I ever really knew about the guy. So uh, I, I do, you know, find that interesting. His second point was, I suspect the Captain America issue that Scott recalled is number 222. I looked this up, and he's right. That is the issue I was thinking of. I just couldn't recall the number. The, the, where, where Abraham Lincoln yes. punches Captain <laughs> America. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He says, which shipped a couple of years after All-Star Comics number 59, but was also done by Ernie Chan Chow. There you go. See? It's the same guy. <laughs> Well, not a self-swipe per se. No, they they are very different covers. It's just the basic 
setup of a giant stone guy clubbing the hero is is it, it looks the same in that angle, but as as far as the actual setup of where the characters are situated and the stances and all, no, it, it they don't really look alike at all. He says, Chan uh, certainly seems to have liked the basic idea of the living statue enough to recycle it. <laughs> Both covers are visually interesting by the standards of the day, though I'm generally not a fan of Chan's work. Now, I'm not crazy about him, but uh, you know he's not the worst uh, cover artist I ever saw either. But yeah, he, he... didn't didn't the discussion of this cover though lead to me joking that after the Abraham Lincoln <laughs> statue kills you, I run off and get a John Wilkes yes. Booth mecca. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> says uh number three i think the character spotlight works better at the end of the episode after the fun of the ad review and hostess reenactment it's a nice way to tie back into the actual characters slash stories you're covering and yes the original earth to robin costume is a bizarre mashup if ever there were one uh i'm thinking the newer version actually debuted in all-star comics number 58 though it soon appeared in justice league of america 135 through 137 and elsewhere no it actually uh yeah it was that justice league. yeah that justice league one that i talked about before what was that issue gosh i can't remember so 91 92? 91 and 92 yeah. somewhere around there wow yeah. the brain actually worked for a change there you go i remembered an issue number <laughs> So thank you very much, uh, Dion. I, I always appreciate your feedback. All right, we got the the next email that has the message uh, the message title of "Great Intro Episode," and this is from Randy S. This isn't your uncle, Randy. No. <laughs> okay, just just asking. Hey guys, just discovered and finished listening to your first episode. I was hoping someone would do a JSA podcast as they are my one of my favorite teams. I started getting into comics around 1978, so I was very into the concept of the multiple Earths. Looking forward to hearing the reviews of All Star Comics, and again, great show. You know, he he says, uh, you know, he was hoping someone would do a JSA podcast. Mm-hmm. Frankly, I'm surprised that we seem to be one of the first. Oh, are we one of the first, or are we the first? Is there another one? I think we're the fir- well. The re- the reason why I add the one of the is if one of them started up and then pod faded. Ah, uh, okay. I want to leave myself that wiggle room, but when well, I dismiss I- those. I mean, if if there's somebody that's oh, okay. not out there active at the same time that you're active, then I think you you've got every right to claim you know we're the the one and only. You know, even if somebody did it <laughs> prior to you, it's when that somebody else is doing it at the same time, kind of thing. Where yeah, you you run into that stickiness, but. But I was shocked when when we we firmly decided we were going to do this. I immediately went onto iTunes and put JSA and Justice Society of America into the podcast search engine, mm-hmm. and it didn't come up with anything. I'm amazed to this day by you know there's a billion comic book podcasts out there at this point covering everything under the sun that it seems like sometimes yet sometimes you can stop and think of the most basic and well-known of characters and there's not a podcast devoted to them yet and you're you're, i'm shocked when that happens you know um i'm trying to think of a character off the top of my head and i'll end up naming somebody that there actually is one but you know like well like superman for the longest time did not have a podcast and I think yeah. even now there's only a couple, aren't there? I mean, there's yours and Billy Hogan's and one or two others, but I mean, Superman. Geez. Yeah, Radio KL yeah. through the Superman homepage. I mean, you would uh, think that but, there'd be, I mean, of, of Superman, you would think there'd be hundreds of Superman podcasts. And the fact that there's probably less than 20 is weird to me. 
it, it seems to me that the concept of doing a podcast about a particular character, especially going to back issues mm-hmm. with that character. Because, like, take Spider-Man. You had Chris Johnson, who had the Amazing Spider-Cast. Uh-huh. And I'm part of the Spider-Man Crawl Space podcast. Right. And they really covered what was going on in Spider-Man that month. Right. And and would occasionally talk about older stories. But it seems that the, you know, our Tales of the JSA format, my From Crisis to Crisis format, uh, there's a Batgirl one that's going to be starting up in January, hosted by a friend of mine. Uh, you know, uh, Will has started his Avengers podcast. It seems like now it's getting to the point where it's not a bunch of people wanting to cover current events, but wanting to look back and talk about it. And really, when you think about it, this is an easy, you know, as much work as you and I put into this, this is much easier than if we were doing a podcast about current events and comics. Yeah, that's that's tough. Staying abreast of all that. Plus the fact, the reason I've never done anything terribly topical in podcasting is that you've got to be up to the minute and it doesn't allow you a whole lot of editing time or, or tomfoolery. Yeah. Whereas something like this, I mean, the, the listeners honestly don't know how long ago we may have recorded this episode. I mean, other than the fact that we're reading email, for example, but say something like, uh, oh, like my Batman Adventures thing. I mean, I'm thinking on that. I'm tired of being last minute on that show. It's easy to be last minute because it takes me like 10 minutes to get it recorded, edited, and slapped up. But I'm thinking I might sit down and do like six months worth of that show while I'm on Christmas break (laughs) just to get it the hell out of the way. And no one would ever know because there's absolutely not one thing in there that's topical. And nobody would ever know that it was all done in like two days. You know, I, I love that. That's what I like about doing back issue style podcasts as compared to that topical stuff. That's way more work and responsibility than a lazy some bitch like me's got time for. So, yeah, same here. <laughs> I'm, I'm just as lazy, sir. Well, moving on, we got comments on episode two, and uh, this was uh, quite the thrilling email for me to receive. You'll 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 find out why at the end. This one says, "Hello, fellas." says, just wanted to write a line and tell you that I am enjoying the new Tales of the Justice Society podcast. One item you might to mention on the show is that there are two trade paperbacks of these early issues of All-Star Comics that you were discussing called Justice Society Volumes 1 and 2. I think the Justice Society Volume 1 is the one that I keep plugging at the end of the show where the stuff that so far we've covered has been reprinted. Volume 2, I assume, is just picking up wherever this volume one leaves off yeah okay i see i'm not a trade guy so i really don't know much about what what trades are out there or what's reprinted where or whatever but i'm, I'm going to try to yeah. get a little more up to speed on that just yeah the second volume finishes off all-star comics and reprints all the adventure comics oh, okay stories as well okay and I think the end of the first volume is where they have the origin story that was in DC Secret Origin or DC Special or... Oh, okay. The one with the Hitler cover? Yeah, the one we're going to be covering. Yeah, yeah we'll cover uh, that. In, mm-hmm. in a couple of months. It's DC but, Special, it's like 29, 26, or 29, like something like that, yeah. It says, also, there is a website that is showcasing the DC 100-page spectaculars that came out in the 70s, and many of them showcase the Justice League and also reprints of Classic Justice Society and Seven Soldiers of Victory stories. Definitely worth a look at. It's HTTP. It's 
DC 100 pages, uh, 100 page, super spectacular, all one word. That's again, that's DC, the number 100, 100 page, super spectacular dot blogspot dot com. I went and checked this out. It's a very cool site. It's really a yes, it is. He says, you mentioned on the last show that Roy Thomas is on your wish list as a guest. How about tracking down Jerry Conway? Being that he wrote so many of the original stories, he would be a natural. Also, don't forget Paul Levitz when you get to to his issues. Now, you're the interview guy. What, what do you think about that? Conway would, would probably be fairly easy to get. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying that arrogantly. It's just uh, I have a buddy that just interviewed him. And uh, I, I contacted him on Facebook recently to actually ask him about the Christopher Pike thing <laughs> uh, to see if it was a Star Trek thing. And he said that it, he doesn't remember because it was a fairly long time ago, but that it probably wasn't a direct reference to which I'm like, OK, Paul Levitz. The only thing about Paul Levitz is that we got to go through corporate on that. Ah, uh, OK. Uh, we would have to find uh, I, I had the I have the guy's email address. Uh, but one of the guys, we basically have to go through like the PR guy at DC ah. because he is on staff. Every interview and stuff that he does has to be cleared through their corporate. Whereas Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway really don't have that issue. So I'm not saying he would be impossible to get, and it would be kind of cool to talk to him about uh, his JSA run. Uh, at the end, but we would probably <laughs> I'd probably have to start talking to him now <laughs> <laughs> or starting the emails now to get it all together <laughs> see honestly i i I'm just gonna be honest i could I could go either way on the interview thing i'm not I'm not real big on the interview things i mean i I enjoy them sporadically when I hear them on other shows, but I'm also of the theory that a lot of times that's when shows can begin to lose listeners if they become one of those kind of podcasts where it's just all about the interviews and all about the celebrities and all that. I don't know some people really dig those I'm kind of in the other group I'm in the group that you know when when I fall in love with a podcast, I generally fall in love with either the format. Or the hosts, you know, and I, and I like their whatever their shtick is, or if it's you know if it's more than one podcaster on a show, whatever their rapport is, whatever their story is, that sort of thing. So I'm more into hearing them and whatever it is they're talking about than I am with guest of the week. You know what I mean? So I'm not saying I'm opposed to it, but at the same rate, I don't really want to become that kind of a show. But that's just me. Okay. Well, you know, just just every once in a while, yeah. it would probably be as as it pertains to what we're talking about. Right. Um, but yeah, but I mean that the uh, I'd like to get Roy Thomas though. Yeah, in all definitely, <laughs> definitely. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. In closing, on show number two, you read a bunch of ads in the comics. This is a great idea, by the way, and read the ad for the first DC Comics convention. I was there in 1976. The Hotel Commodore was an old hotel at the time, but that was part of the charm. I still have the program book that reprinted some rare Neil Adams pencils for a Superman story. I think uh, that two years prior, Marvel threw their first New York City Comic-Con, and I was there also. Ah, memories. Those were the days. Keep up the good work. And this is from David D. This was a big deal email for me to receive, because David D. is, if not the moderator, one of the moderators on the Comic Geek Speak forums, the comicforums.com. And uh, just kind of a, a, a big wig in that community, and it just meant a lot to me to get 
get some some praise for our show from from Tim, particularly because I'm a little embarrassed to say, but I'll admit it. David D and I have we've gone around a couple of times on that forum. And I didn't know that he uh, – I didn't think he held me in very high regard. So to get a nice praising email from him was yeah. really nice. I think that's great, and uh, I really appreciate the feedback, David. It was uh, it was awesome. And wow, to have actually been there at that convention that uh, you talked about, Mike, what do you think about that? I think it's awesome. I actually bought a copy of that program on eBay about seven, eight years ago. Oh, wow. And it, it's it's neat. It's got a interview – quote, unquote, with the Earth-1 and the Earth-2 Superman. Oh, cool. And uh, it has a bunch of, like, little rare things. It's uh, it's somewhere in this room. But uh, it's one of my, like, prized Superman possessions because I realized it was from a convention that, that was taking place literally on the day I was born. So, you know, it's like that weird connection thing that you made fun of a little bit. But that's okay, because you're an ass. <laughs> well, that's what my wife said, anyway. <laughs> my wife said the same thing uh, about you, not me. Oh, no. Oh, no, no. I'm, done. I'm sorry. We're, we're, I think we're getting a bad connection. I'm going to have to let you go. <laughs> and they never spoke <laughs> Um, next email is another one from Dion. It says, thanks again for making time for early listener email. Another highly enjoyable episode. The host, hostess reenactments have been truly hilarious. God, I'm telling so you what. I'm going to change this right now. We are now the Tales of the Hostess Fruit Pies of America <laughs> podcast or something like that. Because we have gotten more feedback about that than anything else that we've done. It's awesome. Uh, until next week, Dion. And then we go through the the the, the English professor style footnotes that i always appreciate on both this show and on from crisis to crisis uh regarding jose's question i agree that removing earth 2 and the multiverse hurt as much as it helped especially in what it did to roy thomas's years of work on that family of characters hippolyta as the first wonder woman was an interesting fix but it would have been better without the time travel element otherwise infinity incorporated was essentially gutted and while there's now a quote-unquote new earth 2 thank you for saying that dion because i feel the same way it's not the world we once had no it's not not quite so you know it's it's basically like hooking up with a high school girlfriend after she's buried and her husband died right (laughs) however you know, much like that scenario and the good, uh, you know, the good uh, reunited sex that you can have out of that, I suppose. <laughs> if they were to do an, a new Earth 2 book, I would I would totally buy a new uh, Earth 2 book, even based in, you know, this uh, not brave new DC. Yeah, not not quite the Earth 2 we remember type of thing but I, I would I would be interested I would at the very least I'd be interested to check it out and see you know I think if they kept it somewhat isolated at first and somewhat separate from the current day mainstream DCU at least until you know it, it got its footing and everything before they started you know bringing those characters over or whatever I, I think it could be interesting I just uh, I just <sighs> I'm, I'm going to keep my mouth shut on that one. So. No, I, I want I want to hear your opinion, honestly. I, I just I just feels like feels like I just feels like um, <laughs> feels like singing. <laughs> I, I just feel like it's a little bit too little, too late. From what I understand, there was going to be something done with that world, and then it was just 
kind of decided against because Grant Morrison is going to be doing that uh, multiple Earth ongoing miniseries, whatever it's going to be that they announce that won't be out for two years. So why the fuck are you announcing it right now? Um, <laughs> God, that bothers me. I hear that. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm sorry you're at a Comic-Con and you need to tell us something because you've blown all your other good news at the previous con, but Jesus, just... Uh, it's what ruined a lot of stories, in my opinion, in DC in the last couple of years. But no, it's just... It, it would be all the same characters with none of the charm and none of the emotional underpinnings that the original Earth 2 had. Because that was a very organic universe. Right. When it when they finally decided to do something with it, with this series, and then with All-Star Squadron, that is when it started developing its own unique identity as a fictional world. Right. And especially when Infinity Incorporated started, it was like, bam, it's another universe, it's got a whole new set of rules, you know, we're, we're acknowledging the past, but we're also moving forward... And you can't recapture something. It's like when Peter David came back to the Hulk. Mm -hmm. They were good stories, but it wasn't going to be anything like what he did because everything he did built upon itself. And you can't shoehorn all of that into a new world and say, look, it's the same thing. But that's just... You're probably right, because I, I remember having a very mixed and very melancholy kind of feel walking away from that JSA annual that brought Earth 2 back. And my initial reaction was very much, oh, that's great, that's awesome. But it was also tinged with a feeling I couldn't quite put my finger on at the time. And I, I guess what it is is a little bit of, of discomfort in the fact that I, I fully realized it was not the same Earth 2. It was like, yeah. you know, I don't know. It was almost like a... It reminded me a lot of the pocket universe where Superboy lived post-crisis, you know, the, the with the whole pocket yeah. universe saga. So that Superboy wasn't exactly the same pre-crisis Superboy, but it was sort of a parallel type of deal. And that's kind of where I feel about this new Earth, too. But I don't know. I still think, granted, I don't have a, a whole hell of a lot of faith in current DC, but I think there's, there's potential there with the new Earth, too, to, to do something interesting with it. If nothing else... You know, they once again have an Earth that they could play with where the threat level would be a little bit higher than it is in the regular mainstream yeah. DCU because, you know, of course we know full well they're never going to bump off or, or radically alter certain characters or certain certain situations because it's their bread and butter. Whereas Earth 2, you can pretty much do whatever the hell you want with it. That yeah, and even if even if they do do it, it's going to be for a temporary time, like what's going on with Superman. And now they just had the news that Bruce Wayne is coming back hmm. uh, as Batman. So you knew it wasn't permanent. Oh, I yeah. <laughs> I, I knew as soon as... Uh, I, I, I thought it would take him a little longer. I thought that we wouldn't see him back until the next... Uh, Nolan film was coming along, but yeah, the, the fact that he would come back was pretty much a foregone conclusion. Uh, Dion continues, Keith Giffen had stints on Claw and Commandy about the same time he was on All-Star Comics, and my wife commented that Commandy has a girl's name. 
not, not to mention odds and ends at Marvel. That's quite the mix of genres and styles, but even this early on, certain of his stylistic tics are evident, which I mean in a good way. Mm-hmm. Joe Staten is still the king of this era art-wise, Amen. but Giffen did... <laughs> I figured you'd say something like that. But Giffen did well for himself considering he was a greenhorn in 1976. His later stint on Dr. Fate is a nice follow-up, particularly because his style had evolved so much by the early to mid-1980s. And, of course, it evolved yet again in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Yes, it did. He mentions here his Marvel stuff. Did you ever read any of his uh, work on uh, Defenders? That was right, right around what issue numbers are we? Somewhere about? in the fifties, I believe, like between like I fifty and sixty or something like that. I, I've read them. I just didn't recognize that it was Keith Giffen yeah. at the time because I have a, I have a good chunk of Defenders from about forty-five till the end of that series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's right I, in I that. Yeah, it's right in that issues. era. So yeah, nice stuff. Uh, really nice stuff. Yes. Oh God, weird as hell, but loved it. <laughs> um, issue number sixty is my favorite of the three thus far. The Marvel style villain Vulcan is one of the biggest reasons, though the character interaction largely feels more interesting now that we set, we're settled in, excepting the Power Girl Flash race where he the thought balloons and dialogues are a bit much. Perhaps Jerry Conway was becoming more comfortable with the characters, too. Either way, the plot and the character bits were nicely balanced and led to a fairly compelling cliffhanger. The final throwdown promises to do something else, and hopefully more tense than the one in number 59. So, that is it from Dion. Cool. And once again, thanks, Dion. Absolutely. Okay, this one, I really, really like you got to find some nice schmaltzy music to put underneath me reading this this particular one. Because this one really... Now, this is going to sound corny, but I'm sincere. This one really touched me. It honestly did. Now, I'll explain after I read it. This one starts out... It says... Uh, the, the title is A Sincere Thank You. And it starts out... Hey, guys. This is Jose. Recently, you read an email of mine on the fourth episode of Tales of the Justice Society. I wanted to thank you. Why? Well, getting anything read on the air is always a joy. But this was special for uh, to me for a different reason. This had not been a great week. I'm coming out of a relationship. I'm about to graduate and enter the real world, and student loans are due. To say I had a lot on my mind and was not feeling too great is the understatement of the century. I downloaded the episode and listened to it after visiting my best friend. You can imagine the look on my face when the email I sent was read. It was such an unexpected joy that I uh, actually pumped my fist in the air at 3 a.m. on the Manhattan streets as I walked home. A little dorky, probably, but I didn't feel so bad. I, I, uh, I know it probably doesn't sound like a lot, but listening to that and the entire episode put me in a good mood. It's a rough road, which doesn't look like it'll get uh, any better soon, but this was a bright spot that was sorely needed. So sincerely, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for lifting my spirits. Jose A. Rivera. And uh, no, you know what? It doesn't sound dorky at all. It's uh, It really touched me because... You know, it's it might sound really funny to, to say, you know, to hear from somebody who does, you know, four weekly shows a week, but... To this day, if I get mentioned on another show, if I get a letter read or an email or whatever, it still thrills me. You know, I, I remember what it was like when I discovered podcasts and was listening, you know, religiously to certain ones. Like, uh, probably the biggest one would be Comic Geek Speak. I, I was a 
major fan of that show. And any opportunity I could, you know, to, to write into them or whatever and try to get, you know, something read on the air or whatever, it was a thrill. And I remember the first time it ever happened, I was at work. You know, I worked this job. It was a, it was a production job where I was, uh, I was working as a uh, quality controller. And I'm listening to my show and I'm walking around in there and everything. And all of a sudden I hear my, my name mentioned in my email read. And I'm doing the same thing, and I'm doing the woohoo, and uh, you know, and I work with all these these uh, what do you call it? immigrant workers, most of whom did not speak English or anything, and they're looking at me like, what the hell is wrong with that freak? You know, <laughs> just giving me the total hairy eyeball. The you loco know, loco and the cabeza. <laughs> exactly. Very good. So I know exactly what you're talking about with that, but you know, besides that and, and really relating and I'm, I'm glad that we were able to cheer you up and and all that is also the fact of wow you know to think you know I lived in New York for like half of my life but never made it to, to New York City and I know that we're being listened to in like London England and Indonesia and all these different places which totally freaks me out but to think that I'm actually vicariously in New York City just because someone is there walking the streets of Manhattan at 3 a.m. listening to, to me going on about my stupid shit. Wow, that's awesome. Man. I think that's cool. I, th- I I was just really thrilled by that. I don't know why it tickles me so much, but it really does. I thought that was totally awesome. But anyway, uh, I'm glad that we were able to brighten your day because, uh, you know, you you likewise totally brightened my day by reading that email. I thought that was totally awesome. What do you think of all that, Michael? I I think this is this is why I like podcasts. Yeah, because I've gotten a handful of these types of emails before, and when when somebody I know what it's like to be really depressed. I mean, I'm kind of going through a rough patch myself right now, and I know that you're going through a similar thing mm-hmm. on your end. And I know how important certain things come to you. I got to talk at DragonCon this year to a gentleman named Keith uh, DeCandidio. Hoping I pronounced his name right. And he was the editor on Marvel's line of novels that came out in like the mid to late 90s. Yeah, I was just thinking that name sounded familiar from Marvel books, yeah. And... What Savage Beast and Ultimate Spider-Man, the anthology Ultimate Spider-Man, not the Brian Michael Bendis, Mark Bagley book, got me through a really bad patch in 95 when I was just having a shit time in life. And I got to thank him for that. And it was important to me to thank him for that and to thank Peter David when I got the chance for writing that book. And to know that something that we've done had that kind of impact on somebody and it's in it you know it's not like we cured cancer it's not like i did that last know, week I, I meant to tell you why do you always got a fucking brush <laughs> um, but um you know we didn't solve world hunger we didn't create peace in the middle east but what we did is for about an hour some guy was in a better mood because you and I were talking about the Justice Society. Yep. And that's just awesome. It is awesome. You're you're absolutely right. Just just makes me and makes me tear up a little bit. Just a little, a little man tear coming down. So this next email is titled Episode Four, also known as A New Hope. <laughs> um it's from John Wilson. 
one of the Wilson boys that writes a lot over at From Crisis to Crisis. Uh, Michael and Scott, can't tell you how much I'm enjoying this series and looking forward to future episodes. For the last several months, I've been on the read-through of all the Super and Lantern-related comments comics of the DCU from the beginning, so I read all the All-Star comics that involved the Green Lantern, which was most of them. But I'm currently in the mid-50s Superman boy stuff, so I haven't read these later, more quote-unquote modern JSA stories yet. That's quite the reading project, John. (laughs) Jesus. Did you download those? (laughs) Uh, Not to mention the fact of, you know, I love that stuff, but wow, you know, you read too much of that stuff, dude, seriously. You you, you need to read... You need to pepper it with something else because you could wind up with like severe brain damage after reading too much of that 50 <laughs> Superman and Superboy stuff. I'm, I'm not kidding. However, I have a great love for the Justice Society and I'm looking forward to this journey with you two loons. Take that as a <laughs> I loved the Christopher Pike reference in All Star Comics 60 in a book where you're, when your villain is Vulcan, it seems almost a requisite. A note I'm way too young to know this from first hand experience, but my understanding of the Trek fan base at this time leads me to believe that this would be a very quickly recognized reference. The Menagerie is the two part movie that introduced the Enterprise previous captain, and all that background information was a big fan favorite. Yeah, you guys talked about that on Two True Friends. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that Pike is only slightly less recognizable to fans than Tribbles. The Menagerie ranks up there with the trouble with Tribbles, the Enterprise incident, and the City on the Edge forever as a fan-favorite episode. So yeah, Christopher Pike's name would definitely have been an understood in-joke with Trek fans. You're more of a Trek fan than I am. Is that a good list of... uh episodes there i think so i you know I, my, the first time i read this email i i kind of thought nah, i don't know but you know he may he does make a a really compelling point not to mention the fact that the menagerie is the only two-part episode of the original series so you know the, you had you know double the chance or whatever of of catching that and being familiar with who pike is so i guess it depends on where you probably lived in the country and yeah. what episodes they played because i mean Captain Pike's only referenced in the Menagerie and never again, and they didn't play the cage back, you know, during these days. So, yeah, I think there's a good, you know, if you were a fan of the show and made a point to watch every episode, then, yeah, you'd probably catch it. If not, you know, if you were only the occasional fan or whatever, it might have slipped by you. But I think he makes a valid point one way or the other. Regarding the government security and quotes dialogue, this is only four years after Watergate and even closer to the Vietnam War. There's a lot, quotes again, of distrust being aimed at the government and their tendency to keep secrets the public would like to know. I think the comment was pretty much in vogue with what the typical liberally minded citizen would have been feeling at the time. You know, I'll agree with that and I'll disagree with that because basically the inherent argument there is that after Watergate, there should have been no secrets whatsoever. And I think any rational thinking person would be like, okay, look, there are certain things that we just don't need to know right. as, as, as citizens. Because I am fairly sure that there are things that the United States government is keeping from the public that if we knew about it would cause a panic. And therefore, society itself would break down. Right. I'm cool with that. Right. I don't, I'd rather go my day to day knowledge not knowing about, you know, the 
the fact that a certain algae has died out, which is going to creep up the food chain and is going to kill off humanity in 30 years. Well, see, this is precisely how our alien masters want it to be. So, you know, you're, 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 you're going with the program, man. That's awesome. <laughs> These aren't criticisms, but rather notes I would, have, uh, I would have brought up if I'd been part of the conversation. Keep up the great work. Mike, thanks so much for bringing the Golden Age JSA to the table. Other H guy, not to be confused with other guy, the sex offender. <laughs> You're older than Michael. Familiarity with earlier comics is a great addition to the perspective. Thank you for saying that Scott is old. On From Crisis to Crisis, Michael is the Superman-wise one, so it's nice to have someone on the show who has been around the comic scene a bit longer than he he has. And I'll agree with that totally. I like the fact that I'm not the the old man of the room. <laughs> ah, fuck you both. I'm leaving. <laughs> uh, no, I, 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 I'll take it as a backhanded compliment. <laughs> Uh, oh, and last question regarding the Star-Spangled Kid. I noticed him using a star rod. Is he related in origin skill set to Starman and or Stargirl? Um, I think we mentioned in the episode, but just in case we didn't, because Scott and I forget, because we're both old. Mm-hmm. Um, the star rod he is using is actually the star rod from star- that Starman lent to him, because Starman, I guess, got drunk and broke his leg. Right. Um, I- I'm assuming he just got like freaking shit faced one night broke his leg is like here you take the cosmic ride dang it but um it was actually originally known as the gravity rod because i guess that was more awesome sounding in the golden age right he is not related bloodwise to starman or the current star girl but james robinson played up right the connection in in the Starman series between Ted Knight and Sylvester Pemberton. Right. And that kind of led when Courtney in that JSA All-Stars miniseries from a couple of years ago took on the identity of Stargirl, she was doing it to honor both of her heritage heritages. Right. Uh, and cuz the the rod she uses was was a uh, Jack Knight. Right. So there is a connection there, and it's really awesome, and I recommend that JSA All-Stars miniseries, because not only did it have a, like a neat current um, story going on, but every issue had a backup feature written, written and drawn by a different artistic team of the Golden Age character the issue was focusing on. And I really liked it. Did you ever get to read that? I have it, and I don't think I've read any of it yet. I need to bump that up on my to-read list, because it, it does look really cool. That's the one where it has... Both, like, when it has, like, Mr. Terrific, it would have both versions of him on there, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I, I have it. I just haven't... Uh, yeah, I was a big fan of that when it came it out. Looks, it looks good. I like the art in it. Okay. I think... Yeah, this is our last one. Here we go. This is uh, from our buddy Jack Paris again. He says, great fourth episode. Hi, Michael and Scott. Thanks again for an amazing episode. Keep it up. Uh, these keep getting better and better. Love the discussion of Vulcan's powers and critique as a Marvel villain. Also enjoyed the Power Girl feminist assessment of uh, her little diatribes. Even, even reading this as a kid, I never understood why she was voiced uh, this way in some panels. It sounded like a puerile Valerie Solanus parody. 
made for Saturday morning cartoons. I, who is this Valerie person? I'm, I should have looked this up ahead of time. Yeah, I was about to say, can you cover while I go to Wikipedia? <laughs> <laughs> and then come in sounding like I know what I'm talking about, please? <laughs> Uh, this is an instance where I'm just going to have to profess my ignorance on that one. I have no idea who that is. But you feel free to look that up real quick if you like. Okay. Also, for the Wildcat temper on TV, it was a different time. People still had images of Elvis blowing away a TV with a gun. It was a laugh. Also, Wildcat was supposed to be a walking blue-collar blue sort of guy. And the TVs that could be afforded back then for most working people were Japanese TVs which at the time were considered trash and inferior products. I think that's a good point. This is why most families with some cash might have had a, an Electra home, but Sony was shite. <laughs> Odd but true. So most people would smack the crap out of their sets. <laughs> and Grant Morrison touching Earth 2 or JSA, hasn't he done enough to the Justice League already? Oh, yes. Cheers and keep it up. Jack. I'm wondering where Jack is from. Jack is... Uh, did he tell us before where he was from? I I completely forget. I can't remember. Um, yeah, with like Valerie Jean Solanas was an American radical feminist writer best known for her attempted murder of Andy Warhol in 1968. She wrote the Scum Manifesto, which encouraged male <laughs> genocide and the creation of an all... Of female society, scum, by the way, stood for Society for Cutting Up Men. I think I dated that chick. Wow. Somebody very like her, anyway. Man. I mean, the only thing that we can do after that is talk about our man. That's like the worst transition in podcasting that history. Was, but I'm I I, yeah. I am the king of bad transitions. So no, but we thank everybody who's written in. Yes, uh, we we've got uh, we've got about four or five for the next episode too, and I really like the conversation they produce. But it also makes me feel like they're involved in the show, mm-hmm. and that's really important to me because as much as Scott and I are the ones hosting this, you know we're, we're, we're well. You know, frankly, if we wanted to do this, we would just sit here and talk on Skype all night. <laughs> and we have done that. Yes. On several occasions, much to the detriment of our relationship with our wives. So, <laughs> that's not true. That is true. <laughs> <laughs> that's the type of thing you cut into a uh, a, a trailer for the show. <laughs> That is true, and then everyone laughs. No, but I am going to continue, because uh, it's it's actually been a lot of fun doing, uh, going through All-Star Comics number three, the very first Justice Society story. Uh, we're, we've, we've heard from Hawkman, we've heard from Flash, we've heard from the Spectre, and now we are going to hear from our man, Rex Tick. Talk Tyler himself. This story was written by Ken Fitch with art by Bernard Bailey, which is really odd because it looks very different from the art in the Spectre story. I mean, there are similarities there, but the Hourman story seemed... I, I, don't, I don't know if he was rushing on the uh, Spectre story or not, but in the beginning of the story, Rex Tyler's boss asks him to take his niece to the costume ball at the Durant estate. His boss flips out and pretty much insults Rex 
which Rex reacts to by saying that he will dress up by our man. It's, <laughs> this conversation is great. There's a costume ball at the Durand estate tonight. I want you to take my niece. But, sir, I haven't a costume. Besides, what could I go as? And the boss goes, what difference does it make what you go as? Nobody will look at you. They'll be more interested in seeing the Durant Diamond Collection. (laughs) Fuck you! (laughs) God, what an ass! So he dresses up as Our Man, which I hate it when superheroes go to costume balls dressed in in their secret identities costume. It's happened so many times. Didn't Spider-Man do something like this once? At least once? I know he did it on the TV series. Yeah. It was it was it was the clone episode because he had that like musketeer costume which he ripped the pants out of <laughs> and had to go as Spider-Man. Um so he picks up Regina who is rather attractive, so I don't know what he's bitching about. Uh who thinks it's a rather novel idea to dress as our man until they get to the party and see four or five other our man. One of them tells him, "You know what the boss said about bringing women?" ditcher before we start to go to work and you know of course rex is like uh, oh sure i'll i'll get rid of her so then he goes off and 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 pops a steroid i mean the miraclo uh pill miraclo do your stuff now i'll rejoin janita hmm someone's with her so our man figures out that these guys are up to no good and that they intend to steal the diamonds and blame it on our man and our man, uh, our man does a pretty good job of fighting them off until the lights go out and he gets struck with a gun. And, you know, a- after the lights come back on, you know, the diamond's gone and Durant is standing there, you know, basically saying, he's one of them, Miss Page, get away, I've got him covered. And instead of going, you know, no, I'm not, I'm Rex Tyler, I came with Regina, she has my alibi, he goes batshit crazy, attacks Durant, despite Regina saying, hey, you're innocent. He eludes the police and strips off their uniforms and uses it as a disguise. He follows the crooks to Melba Island and tries to take them on again, but a bullet grazes his temple and they capture him. So he causes a big disruption and lures one of the fake hour men into the room, fights off the rest of them, discovers that Durant is in on it, and they all get thrown in the clink. I like this story a lot, actually. <laughs> It was the, you know, when he's fighting off Durant at the party, it was the tightest spot I've ever been in. Stunned by Durant's accusation, I knew I had to get away. So as Durant came towards me, and he like crescent kicks the gun out of his hand. <laughs> it's this weird ballet type kick. And she goes, Rex, what are you doing? You're innocent, but I've got to prove it. You don't have to prove it. You came with her. <laughs> She's your alibi. She's going to tell the cops that, hey, he's not with them. He's with me. He's all roided up on Miraclo, man. He just has to to go into action. I I think they cut out the scene where he bit the head off of a kitten. (laughs) I'm not quite sure. Um, But it's really funny. This actually takes the concept of a criminal dressing up as the hero... And uses it to a novel effect. I'm serious about that. Uh, you know, for... I hate to say this because this is going to sound incredibly arrogant, but for a Golden Age story, this was this was a neat little plot. And the twist at the end, which you kind of saw coming a mile away, is that Durant was in on the theft all along. Mm-hmm. Which, which, you know, 
makes sense because that's how a lot of these stories. I mean, all, like freaking all of Law and Order, criminal intent is this plot basically. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but at the end, he's sitting there with his mask off. So I guess this is like the only time our man could like reveal that he's Rex Tyler and get away with it. Uh, Fifteen minutes later, I delivered them to the police. But what? What? The cop says. These will explain. The broker's letter showed that Durant needed money. These gems are phonies. Durant had these crooks steal them. He intended to collect the insurance to cover his market losses and pay off these crooks. You sure showed some nerve, mister. I guess it must have been the costume, eh? No one at this point looks at him and goes, Hey, are you our man? Because <laughs> you took down like six guys. And they had guns. Nah, you're not our man. We're gonna let we're gonna let you go. Fucking idiots. <laughs> I don't know. I love you know. I was rather disappointed with the Spectre story, the banjo music, uh, notwithstanding from from last episode. <laughs> um, but this one, I actually really got into when I was reading it. It was a lot of fun. I, it, it was just. But it, it's actually not the last story in here that has something to do with insurance fraud. Surprisingly. <laughs> Was insurance fraud a big problem? I guess there must have been an epidemic back in the day. (laughs) But we're going to move... uh, Do you have any uh, particular opinions on this story before we move on? I know you were reading along. Just just goofy, golden age fun. I I get a kick (laughs) out of it. I like Our Man, though. I really do. I don't know why, but I always had an affinity for for that character. I, I, I think he's got one of the cooler outfits... From, from I always thought head. he looked like he was wearing a bath towel as a kid. <laughs> but uh, more on Our Man next episode. Mm-hmm. So we are going to move on to the main feature, which is All-Star Comics number 62, When Fall the Mighty. The cover pretty much blows away what would have been a great reveal if they hadn't mentioned it. Uh, <laughs> mentioned it right there on the freaking cover. But I'm going to actually wait on that until we get into this. This was cover dated September, October 1976. Uh, The credits include Jerry Conway Plot, Paul Levitt's Patter, I'm guessing that's dialogue, Keith Giffen Pacing, Wallywood Pictures, aided and abetted by Carl Gafford and Ben Oda. And like Scott did last time, because there is no JSA roll call this time, you have Wildcat, Dr. Midnight, a dying Dr. Fate, Star-Spangled Kid, Hawkman, Power Girl, Green Lantern, Flash, and Our Man, and a mystery member to be revealed later. We open with the Star-Spangled Kid sitting inside a very Kirby-looking machine, (laughs) What, yeah, that looks like Jack Kirby freaking drew it, and then just and then everyone just took off with the rest of the story. <laughs> with the rest of the JSA trying to figure out how to save Dr. Fate. Unless there is a miracle, Fate won't live through the night. They give it one last shot, and suddenly Power Girl sees an onk in the computer screen, leading them to think that Fate is still aware, even though he's in a coma. After recounting Dr. Fate's origin, which we detailed last time, Green Lantern wants to search for Mystic Secrets, where Kent Nelson became Dr. Fate. Hawkman needs to leave to take care of some personal business. On their way out, Lantern and Hawkman are greeted by Flash and Hourman. Apparently the Flash got out of 
whatever his wife wanted him to do when she came in the middle of the fight last issue. He had to take the trash and, out. And, and, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what he did. Maybe he doped her up, left her at home, snoring away while he's off with the boys. You know, this, this kind of story plays out a thousand times in marriages of this era. Flash and Hourman who stop by to lend a hand. Flash agrees to join Green Lantern on his quest while Hourman goes into the headquarters and Hawkman heads home. As Hourman whines that this isn't the GSA he remembers, Clyburn is killed by Xanadu. Shiera tries to fight Xanadu but fails, and Xanadu transports himself and Shiera out of the warehouse. Flash and GL head to Egypt while Our Man whines some more about Power Girl and Wildcat fighting and questions if this is what superheroes are like today. Meanwhile, Hawkman discovers the melted amber in Clyburn's body and calls in the rest of the team. Wildcat and Power Girl bicker some more, with Our Man saying that they have the chance to prove they can do more than bicker after getting the call. And a fourth member receives the summons as well. A mild-mannered editor ponders for a moment before heading to a familiar storeroom. And once again, Clark Kent becomes Superman! Yes! <laughs> I was so excited, even though they blew it on the cover. I was so excited! <laughs> Back at JSA headquarters, Hawkman briefs the team, and we get a lovely diagram of the JSA's brownstone, which was pretty part and parcel for this era. If they were going to show you that headquarters for the first time, you were going to get that cool schematic of it. More bickering breaks out before Superman shows up, because if anyone's going to shut down useless bickering... It's fucking Superman. Mm -hmm. This Superman's not going to put up with that shit. Wildcat is happy because he thinks Power Girl will be given the boot, but Superman thinks she's done a pretty bang-up job, so shut the fuck up, Wildcat. We see a bit of family drama before Hawkman says they need to start dealing with the bigger problems before them, namely, we need to save my wife. Everyone leaves but our man, who is annoyed that he came out of retirement for glorified guard duty. Our, our man is such a freaking whiner in this issue. Half a world away, Xanadu starts doing some evil, evil things when the JSA arrive. Superman and Power Girl attack from the front, but are foiled rather quickly. Meanwhile, Hawkman investigates the near-dead people that have been lining the streets because of Xanadu, Xanadu's who's what's it when Wildcat hears some funky music. Suddenly, he attacks Hawkman, and when he asks Wildcat, Hey, why did you just hit me? Wildcat explains that he is only doing what a member of the Injustice Gang would do. And I'm going to read directly from the last page of this episode because... Uh, issue, excuse me. We keep saying episode and issue. Ah, they're interchangeable. It says... That's right, reader. There's still more action on the way, because next issue, Superman versus Power Girl, Xanadu versus the JSA, the return of the Injustice Gang, more on the Mysterious Stranger, and the death of Dr. Fate. And really and truly, I think only two of these things <laughs> happen next issue. That's <laughs> ah, a month I, away. They're kids. They won't remember. <laughs> They'll forget. No, but uh, but this was uh, despite hating Xanadu, this was a rather packed issue. Yeah, it was it was meaty. There was a lot going on in this one. I like this issue. So do I. I'm kind of curious why on that first page, uh, Green Lantern is holding Doctor Fate's helmet like it's made of cloth. Yeah, he looks like he's crushing it. 
I, I, I would figure the helmet of fate uh, would be a little more sturdy than that, but that, maybe that's just me. I was thinking that uh, that they'd want to leave his helmet on because I thought he drew his magical powers from the helmet. And that maybe it would actually aid in his healing process or whatever in this issue, but I don't know. Maybe that's just it probably me. would, but they don't know that, so they're killing him. And <laughs> not really that they're doing it. <laughs> oh man! Well, we got some good uh, got some good notes for this one. Now, did you want to talk about the cover? Yeah, I don't know how to feel about it. Uh, I like Ernie Chan. I just don't really like that 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 shot of Superman. No. He looks kind of he looks kind of funky. You got Xanadu's head in the background. Uh, I, I will say that Hawkman is really selling being choked <laughs> uh, by Wildcat. There, that the, the that's almost like a Joe Kubert head on there. And, and Power Girl, you know, Power Girl looks fine. It's just it's. Kind of an ugly color. It, it is. It really is. I'm glad you said it because I, I was going to if you didn't. But, uh, <laughs> you know, the cover copy plays up the fact, you know, it, it says, literally it says, he's back, the Golden Age Superman, in action again. And then it violates one of the rules of comic book covers, which is it puts the person who's supposed to be prominent front and center kind of off to the left, in the background. Plus, this this is not the Earth 2 Superman. This is like the regular old Superman appearing in Earth 1, you know, regular continuity comics. There's nothing dynamic or, or different looking about him or anything. He's, he's very clearly not the same character that's in the interior of the book. Yeah. It, it just, it, it lacks the dramatic punch of, well, here's Superman appearing. You know, he, he's, I think this was kind of a, a, a uh, problem that was happening back in this era anyway in general of DC is that Superman had just become one of the guys in a lot of ways yeah. that, that he it lacked a certain amount of oomph when Superman would pop up I, li- I always like it when it's a big deal when Superman shows up in a book that he's not normally got anything to do with at all well, well, that's the thing is that in the story itself his appearance is pretty dramatic mm-hmm. I mean it, it's it's a big deal you know, because he is in semi-retirement at the time, as we'll discuss in a little while. Right. So him, like, actually heeding the call of the JSA means that, you know, to him, it's like, well, you know, I've got to go help out. Right. You know, they, they, they've called me at, at the office. I told them never to call me at the office, but they called me at the office. And, you know, it's just, you know... When he shows up, everyone's like, hey, it's Superman. And it's a very Joe Schuster-looking Superman. Too. Yeah, I love... the reason I like yeah, it. Yeah, love the way that uh, that Keith Giffen draws Superman. Love it. The third page of this of, of this issue is kind of... It, I like it. I, I think it, the, the layout of the page is, is pretty interesting. Because at the top, you have what I'm assuming is Naboo. Yes, kind of framing the the top middle of the page and you have you know the action going on around it where he's holding a little boy and that he's holding Dr. Fate to show that you know he raised Kent Nelson to become Dr. Fate but it's kind of interesting to see at the on the bottom of the page you have Green Air, Green Lan- Green Arrow <laughs> Green Lantern and Hawkman walking towards the front door and then the perspective flips and you see 
Flash and Hour Man. And it's not like anyone is drawn like really dynamically, but I like it just the same because it's very natural. Yes. Uh, Green, Green Lantern's walking along. He's holding his cape so that it doesn't drag on the floor. I mean, th- there was obviously a lot of thought put into this. I like the fact that the the nurse behind the, f- the station at the front door is kind of wigged out that Flash and Hour Man have entered the room. <laughs> what? <laughs> I like uh, one of my favorite parts of the whole comic is at the top where... Uh, GL comes up with the idea of maybe somebody ought to go to Egypt and see if maybe there's some hidden secrets there that can possibly save Dr. Fate. And Hawkman's like, sweet! Well, you go do that, because I don't want to. (laughs) As chairman, I nominate you. Are we still voting on shit? Really? plan. Well, I don't want to do that, so go ahead. I love it. I like that too. That makes me. Yeah, he Hawkman is pretty much on his in his own little world right now. He is. Uh, he, he he's concerned. Now, granted, I completely understand because you know if someone's like, "Hey, Mike, your 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 wife's been hurt or whatever," I'd be fucking out of there too, not caring about anything going on. But um, but yeah, uh, jumping forward just a little bit, page six where Xanadu kills Clyburn. Mm-hmm is just freaking awesome. <laughs> because you have him screaming, Yeah! Which, in some comics, can be boring and pede- pedestrian. But what Giffen and Wallywood did is that the Yah is actually the panels right. of the page. And it frames Xanadu burning the shit out of Clyburn in his disco... He looks like he's roller discoing. Actually, yes, he does. He looks like roller skates on the bottom. I don't know about yes, you. Yes, very much so. But as much as I don't like this character in any way, shape, form, or fashion, and think that, wow, why are we even doing this story? <laughs> Which is terrible to say, but it's true. It, it's this is not this. I, I I hate to say it, but the funky looking, futuristic looking Degaton was more interesting than this. Yeah, yeah, this villain's not a uh, not one of my favorites. He does have one functified looking outfit, though. Oh yeah, man, he he's got like George Clinton on in the background. You know he does. <laughs> no. We want the funk. Oh yeah. Well, speaking of, of such things, go back a, a couple of pages to where uh, to where our man is uh, walking off here just before Hawkman flies out, flies off in a yeah. hussy. And it's this this dialogue box kills me. It says his name is Rex Tyler. And his superpowers exist for only an hour at a time. But before this night is ended, that hour will arrive, and his aging muscles may well flex for a last time. Does this not sound like a Viagra commercial to you? <laughs> I'm just saying. Or Flomax. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> are, you, are you comparing Miraclo to Viagra? Hey, you know, it just might have that effect. You never know. Are, are you saying that the next shot is going to be Rex Tyler and his wife in those fucking tubs that are like everywhere in those commercials? You know, my wife asks every time those commercials come on, hey, do you get the tubs with the Viagra? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> All right, this... He is... He, oh, go no, ahead. Go, go ahead, man. 
I was just about to say, Our Man is just annoying throughout this. He is too whiny in this one, I think. Man. Just like, it's like that was his purpose. He wasn't here for any other reason but to go, Why are you guys fighting? This isn't the JSA I know. I, uh, my pussy hurts. I mean, Jesus, it just bugs the crap out of me. <laughs> well, I hope that changes fast, because I like that character too much. Oh, I like Our Man, yeah, too. I don't want him to be just relegated to being the, the you know, the, the pisser and moaner on the team, you know? <laughs> I'd rather that be somebody that I already find annoying in the first place, not somebody I like and they're going to make him annoying, but we'll, we'll see if that if he shapes up or not. What <laughs> one point I've just got to point out here is uh, the awesome panel where uh, Flash is running across the ocean and GL's just kind of tagging along with him, and he's all worked up because of what happened to Doctor Fate and everything. And um, oh, Flash says to him, "Do you really think we'll find something in Egypt to cure Fate, uh, Green Lantern?" And he says, "I hope so, and I hope it doesn't want to come along quietly. I need something to fight." Something to kill. And I'm thinking, Jesus Christ, you just killed somebody in the last issue. He's bloodthirsty, I'm telling you. Scott, don't you don't you remember? The alien came to cure Vulcan, and Vulcan ended up curing the alien, and by killing the alien, he killed himself. Don't you remember that? Yeah, he's Hawkman explained it to us. Man, he's buying into Very... it big time too. <laughs> I hear Kathy Bates in the background going, have you all got amnesia? (laughs) He didn't get out of the cock-a-doody car! Uh, um, But that's that's something kind of indicative of this this era of the JSA. It's like last issue, Power Girl made that very out-of-character offhand comment, but you know, too much power can be bad, too. It's like, what? Where did that come (laughs) from? This has nothing to do with the story at hand. So far, I have noticed at least, uh, you know, in, in every issue, there's at least one, what the hell are you talking about moment? It's it's hilarious. I'm loving it. <laughs> just one moment where you know at least one other member of the team is looking at him just like, are you out of your mind? What? <laughs> he looks at another member, and that member shrugs. That's all yeah. that they can do. I don't know. Just run with it, man. I don't know what the hell he's talking about either. <laughs> uh, so uh, Superman returns, and the, these pages are just phenomenal. Superman returns, and it's not total suckage like another Superman returns that we could talk about. <laughs> no, this page, um, I think it's page 11. You have this shadowed form of Clark Kent just kind of pondering for a moment. And that kind of goes against the man of action that this Superman is, but I think they were just making it for dramatic. But they are totally aping. It's like Joe Schuster and Wayne Boring had a kid, Mm -hmm. and he drew this page. And it's really cool. He goes into the storeroom. You see the the shirt rip, even though it's all in shadow. The cape flies on, which I always kind of liked, seeing the image of him putting the cape on. He stands there and poses... No idea why, but at the bottom of the page, he's leaping. Yes. He's not flying. That's kind of odd, because I thought it was already established that this Superman was already at the point where he could fly. But still, it was kind of cool. It is cool. And you even have someone going, look, up in the sky. 
I really, really like that. Well, it's nice to me to, to learn that uh, one of the first times I can remember seeing Giffen draw Superman, especially when he drew him like this, was in uh, DC Comics Presents. It was in, an issue with uh, Superman and the Legion of Superheroes. And I think it had Ambush Bug. Yeah, I did. It was where Ambush Bug oh, got boy. loose in the future. And But he drew Superman very much like this. And I can remember seeing that as a kid. Thinking it was awesome, but also thinking it was very, very odd because he looked so completely different from any other drawing I'd ever seen of Superman. And now I see that, you know, now I understand, of course, that, you know, it was an homage back to the old Schuster stuff, but also that that wasn't an aberration that Keith Giffen had had actually drawn Superman like that prior to that uh, that DC Comics Presents issue. So that's pretty cool, you know, that he was consistent in that art style with Superman. So, do you recognize the character that's in the uh, robes on page eleven? The uh, see, my pages are not numbered. So, is this across from the DC TV series ad? Yes. No, I was wondering who this was. Now, is he the same guy? Well, I don't want to spoil ahead. Yeah, I don't want to spoil ahead. I was just wondering if you if you knew who it was. Well, after next issue, I think I know who it is. I, I know who I hope that it is anyway. Oh yeah, I'm, but, I'm looking forward to it. But at this point, just... at this point, no, I don't I don't I I read this part and I didn't have any idea who it was. But it seemed kind of weird to throw him into this though, cuz I th- I think one of the thing that hurts this storyline as a whole that Conway is writing and the Levitz is, is dialoguing is that it jumps around and has two there's too much going on, and I can see that because the main part with Xanadu is, is kind of boring, but it just seems like they're trying to throw too much foreshadowing into the story, mm-hmm. and then it kind of interrupts the overall flow. I don't know if you got the same sense. That's that's what I did. So, Well, I didn't think that there was so much too much going on so much as sometimes I had trouble remembering what characters were where and sometimes i almost get the feeling that the creative team did as well you know i mean i i i'm tempted in some of these issues to actually write it down okay hawkman is here right now flash is here right now just to keep score and see if they ever screw up because i i I swear sometimes i get the feeling that half the team is off in like tokyo or something and then in the next panel, the other two guys that weren't there are suddenly there with no explanation. I could be wrong about that, but I thought I caught him in it at, at least once or twice. But it's because there's so many characters, and they are constantly globe-hopping all over the place that maybe maybe I'm just getting a false sense of they're not being consistent with their locations or something. But that's kind of a minor a minor nitpick. It's got to be rough anyway to write a team book with so many different characters, I would think, and keep track oh, of yeah. everybody and where they are. I, I, I agree completely. Uh, what did you think of the diagram of the brownstone? I love it. I miss these kind of things from comics. I used to love that. You know, like when they would do, uh, you know, the Bat Cave every couple of years. They would, you know, show you new ver- versions of the Bat Cave or Avengers Mansion or something like that. I, I was always a sucker for these kind of things. I kind of miss them. Or, or the layout of the Fortress of Solitude. Yeah. I love that. that. Like in that oh. amazing world of D- DC Comics Superman special where you open it up and then like the middle of it is a huge two-page spread. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Geeking out. Gotta stop. <laughs> I absolutely love this. I love Superman, but I especially love Superman when he's a dick to other people. I love it. <laughs> 
I love it that you know here's Hawkman. He's the chairman of the of the team, right? He's the big yes. boss. It's his wife that's in danger. Superman comes in. They all run off to Tokyo to go rescue Hawkman's wife. Superman puts him on crowd control. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> he like, ah, you got wings. Um, you go, you go tend to crowd crowd control. I love it. I just love it when Superman comes in and lets you know somebody else know that. You ain't shit. I'm Superman. <laughs> well, I like the uh, going back just a little bit from that. I like the first meeting that we're seeing between Superman and Power Girl because mm-hmm. okay, you you said it's great when Superman's being a dick. I felt that way right here with Wildcat. <clears throat> Terrific! Now that we've got the original back, we can send Power Girl back to training camp. And Superman's like, it's almost like he's thinking, does he know we're related? Yeah, exactly. There's two of us in the entire universe. We're it. And he goes, from what I've heard, Wildcat, my cousin was filling my boots admirably, even if it was against my orders. And there's this like little tense moment between him. And she turns around. She goes, don't patronize me. And and they have, like, a very real argument. Right. I don't get this as her being a feminist, in quotes, or her, you know, saying, you know, I can do anything a man can do. It's, you're my overprotective cousin. You know, ju- you know, we both left the planet at the same time. I stayed in suspended animation, so it's not my fault that you're older than I am. Right. So stop treating me like a kid. And I was just like, and, and he's he's giving her, like, he's not being patronizing to her. It's like, I haven't stopped you, but you can't learn everything overnight. Give yourself a chance to grow. And I loved that conversation. Because it is the very much, you know, he's wanting her to be the best she can be. He's obviously proud of her. And she's just wanting to be from out of his shadow all automatically. And both of them are right, and both of them are wrong. Right. And, and I have a feeling that, you know, if I have a daughter, this argument's going to happen. <laughs> you know, something I had not noticed till this very instant is that I guess the cover isn't completely wrong after all, because Superman has the same exact S emblem as the Earth yeah. one. It's a, it's a little smaller, and it's a little, it's slightly more, like, diamond-shaped rather than the pentagon shape, but it's essentially the same one. So now I'm curious, I wonder when he adopted that one that would eventually become his own, that one that I really don't like with the with the top of the S slanting way over to the right. You, know, you mean the one Perez drew? Oh, is he the one that came up with that? Well, there have been like 13 different versions of it, but that really started to creep in. I remember the, one of the first times I really noticed it was uh, DC Comics Presents Annual Number 1. Oh, okay. And you almost had to do it there because you had two men in the book that were... Right, right. So my favorite iteration is is the George Perez version uh, from Crisis. Right. Uh, mainly because he and Ordway put in the detailing on Superman's cuff that made it look like the costume from the serial. Right. And I love little details like that. I love that S that's on the uh, in Crisis, at least, uh, even though that's jumping ahead pretty far. I like the fact that Power Girl and Superman are standing on top of the flying car. <laughs> 
just dramatically, like, cape billowing in the wind, and this is a job for Superman. Ah, epic. Loving it. And and, and we get more of their arguing. She goes, uh, you know, there you go again, cousin, leaving me out. I'm not used to having a Power Girl. Uh, I'm not used to having a Power Girl partner, because I'm an idiot. <laughs> I'm, not used to, I'm not used to having a partner, Power Girl. We'll get used to it, because I'm going to be around for a long time. But then... They just jump into it, and they're a team, Mm -hmm. and they're fighting together, and there's no animosity, and they both get taken out rather quickly. (laughs) Uh, Is it me, or Xanadu's power is kind of vague? Yeah, he's pretty much can do anything he decides he wants to do when he decides he wants to do it. He's, yeah, very, very undefined. I don't know if he's supposed to be some sort of... Wizard or magician? I don't know. I I, <laughs> I honestly didn't like him enough to really. Yeah, find I, out. that's actually that's my note too. I really don't like him actually. Yeah, <laughs> I was largely unimpressed by Mister Xanadu. Um, the ending. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that? With uh, Wildcat, Wildcat clocking Hawkman. I mean, I'm I'm cool with it. It's it's set up for the next story. Was there was there something about it that bothered you? It just came out of nowhere. Well, it's it's the setup for the next issue. It's the it's the cliffhanger ending to to make sure that you are curious enough to come back. Plus, I mean, you know what what did we like as kids more than anything in in old comics, which was when heroes would fight each other. You know, and in this one, all of a sudden, for no good reason whatsoever, Wildcat just clocks Hawkman, which I don't know why amuses the shit out of me. I really get a kick out of that, that he would just all of a sudden just... No, because Hawkman has been pretty, you know, self-important and self-obsessed throughout the entire issue. He needs to be hit in the back for that stupid face mask thing he's got in this. I always thought the bird thing looked ridiculous to begin with, and then he goes and makes it even worse, which is a hell of a task, really, when you consider he's wearing a friggin' bird head on his on his face. There have been two artists that have drawn Hawkman to my satisfaction. One of them was Joe Staten, mm-hmm. when he had that gold helmet look that we're going to get to, yeah. and the other was Mike Perobeck. Yeah. Ah, I hate this man. Yeah, I like the gold helmet. That, isn't that the one that eventually uh, Golden Eagle would eventually take? I'm pretty sure. I believe so. Yeah. No, but, but like I said in the very first episode of this show, I freaking hate, hate that mask. Mm. Hate it. It looks it looks stupid. It's like it looks like a Mexican wrestler is what he looks like. <laughs> a little bit. Oh my god, you're right. He does. He looks <laughs> like he should be in that what's that show my kids watch that uh Oh shit, now I can't think of the name of it. I wanna say Mucho Libre or something like that. I'm not sure that's yeah. right. But you know what I mean you know what I mean? Yes, I, I know I know what you're talking about. It's on Cartoon yeah. Network, I think. <laughs> Nacho Libre or something. I don't know what the hell the name of it is. Anyway. Jack. Yeah, I think it is, actually. But you get the idea. Well, Hawkman's got a strange look anyway. I mean, I've never been comfortable with the with the guy characters that go around without a shirt on. You know? The Hulk, I can see it working for. It doesn't work for anybody else. Are you threatened by it? or It's just kind of creepy. It's like, put a goddamn shirt on. It's like... <laughs> Wait, wait, wait. Who's your childhood hero? My childhood hero? Superman. 
Oh, okay. Who's your other childhood other hero? Child- oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> he didn't like to wear a shirt. James <laughs> yeah, C. Kirk he liked to get would, out. James C. Kirk, every opportunity he had to shred his shirt, he took it. So. <laughs> all right, all right. I guess so. I guess my problem is is that, you know, you, you couldn't ever go to McDonald's with him. You know what I mean? They, they wouldn't let you in. Like, oh, sorry, sorry. You might be Captain Kirk, but, uh, you know, see the sign right here. No shirt, no shoes. I would so go to McDonald's with William Shatner just to see what it was. Totally. What would he order? I don't know. I'd like a double quarter pounder, supersized, <laughs> with a Dr. Pepper. Because <laughs> he strikes me as a guy that would drink a Dr. Pepper. Oh, yeah. Coke. I think he was in so, a Dr. Uh, Pepper commercial once, if I remember correctly. We are way the hell off topic. Well, oh, uh, God. I was, was going to bring us back. Do you have anything else about this issue? No, that's pretty much it. I really, I really like this issue. Wackiness yeah. included. I really did dig this issue. I like all of them so far. You know, even as as goofy and strange as they can get, even when they have some seriously lame-ass villain that they're fighting, I still get a real kick out of these issues. Well, I guess we can move into the ads, and, mm-hmm. and it's very its very sad. There is a hostess ad in this in this comic, but it is not a superhero hostess yeah. ad. And Scott and I really don't know what to do with ourselves now. We're, we're just, if we, I mean, we can't act out the hostess ad. Because the hostess ad is for the three free baseball cards. What the shit? Yeah, and I don't know about you, Scott, but I've always had this kind of animosity towards baseball cards. Um, I don't like them. I understand them because I collect non-sports cards. I mean, I've got a freaking filing. Oh, really? Oh, we got to talk about that sometime. What, non-sports cards? Oh, yeah, I've got a bunch of them here. But, you know, it's just like baseball cards. I understand their place in Americana. I, I, I understand their place in my bicycle spokes, and that's about it. But I've always felt that with a comic book, you have a story. You have something you can read. With a baseball card, you look at the guy on the front, you read his stats on the back, you put it into a sleeve, and you put it away. And that's pretty much it. Maybe you trade them. And it's just like I've always felt the superiority of the comic book over the baseball card, which apparently makes me un-American. And and I am really I'm kind of mad at Hostess for, 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 for failing us. Um failing us this month i i I really am well also and i realize that this is perpetuating a stereotype that not every comic book reader falls into this category but i would be willing to bet that the significant portion of us do or at least back in these days did okay once again do i have to keep saying this what audience are you pitching to i'm reading a fucking comic (laughs) book why are you putting sports stuff in here we don't play baseball we read comic books so, I don't know. Just, well, there is there is that portion of, of the comic book reading audience that is very much into baseball and, 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 and football, both college and professional. It's just, I'm like you. I'm just like, no, I, I read comics as a kid. I, uh, I had no hand-eye coordination, so baseball really wasn't for me. I would be really, really curious to hear from our audience. Not serious. I really want some feedback on this. Uh, of the audience members that are closer to Michael's and my age, I think the thing with with because I, I do see what your point your point I see a lot of like forum members yeah that you know start threads like uh, yeah so what's your pick for the fantasy football writer? and I'm going this is a goddamn comic book forum why are you talking about football and it always annoys the fuck right out of me when I see that but 
I realize that in this day and age, there are a lot of comics fans that are embracing, but I subscribe to the theory, and I want people to either confirm it or deny it. One way or the other, I want to settle this thing. Back in these days, back in 1976, I'm willing to bet that 99.9% of comic book readers were not sports fans. You you were drawn to comics because you were the kid that didn't play sports for whatever reason. Maybe you were sickly like I was, or maybe you were just a dork, or maybe you were the glass kid pick for the team, so you said, ah, fuck sports, I'll read comic books. I want to know... That's me. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I would really bet that most kids reading comics back in the day didn't want shit to do with sports or sports didn't want shit to do with them one way or the other. You know what I mean? And I think (laughs) that's different today because comics don't carry quite the social stigma that they did, you know, even 10, 20 years ago. You know, today they're a little bit more mainstream. They're a little bit more accepted. I was in a Target today and I looked in the men's clothing section. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is always dodgy with a guy my size, because Target really doesn't like the husky male. And they had a they had a whole display of pajamas, pajama sets, and right there next to the Superman one was like the UGA one. Mm-hmm. Geek culture is all about crossover these yep. days, and it has been for the past like six or seven years. Yep. It's like, if you're not reading comics and watching Lost and watching Heroes and watching Smallville and going to all the latest movies and playing video games and getting into Hero Clicks or something, if you're not doing all those together, it's like you're not a true geek. Right. I'm a specialist. I like comics. I like other things, like you and I have talked Star Trek and Star Wars. Right. You know, I like other geek things. You know, people of my generation, it's G.I. Joe and Transformers. And, you know, and Voltron and Thundercats and stuff like that. But, you know, my main thing is comics. And it seems like when I'm talking to people and they're like, well, did you play Arkham Asylum? I'm like, you know, I don't really play video games. It's just like, oh, really? Yeah, really. What the fuck? (laughs) I think I've said that to you myself, haven't I? (laughs) Yes, but I wasn't going to bring it up. Anyways, um... No, but 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 that's the thing is, but but I think you're right. I'd I'd like to hear from the the audience because we we've apparently got a very vocal audience. Mm-hmm. You know what their thing is because for me, I, you know, when I was little, I was short and I was skinny. I couldn't run really fast. I had short, stubby legs, and no one really liked to pick me for their team. So it's just like fuck this, right? You know, and I had no hand-eye coordination. No hand-eye coordination. It was terrible. Uh, but moving on, we got a shooting a Daisy with Daisy air rifle. <laughs> I do, I do want to see the 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 statistics on the number of one-eyed thirty-five to forty-five-year-olds that you brought up last time. I, I, I totally agree with you on that. Okay, I've mentioned before that there was a significant shift around this time period in comic book ads, where it went from really cool stuff to like record commercials, basically. Right. And we have one of those. The Rolling Stones, black and blue. This creeps me the hell out. What's with the dude in the suit? I look at this and I just go, Mom, Mick Jagger's looking at me. You know, he he's really creepy. The dude in the suit, I don't know, is this a member of the band? Because it actually looks like their agent or something. 
<laughs> and what the fuck is the agent doing on the record? Album? I have no idea. See, I don't. I'm not familiar enough with the with all the members. I know Mick and I know uh, Keith, and I couldn't tell you which one is Keith in this picture. And that's about it. I have no idea who the rest of these guys are. My my like of the Rolling Stones as a group ends at about 1969. So. <laughs> Just like everything before that, I'm really down with. Anything after that, okay, maybe Street Fighting Man. I don't know. Uh, I've always been more of an Elvis person over the Rolling Stones or the Beatles. So, But that's just me. Uh, another, the what? I said, you heathen. <laughs> I forgot, you're a Beatle I'm a Beatle fan. <laughs> yep. <sighs> and that's cute. No, sorry, that was really oh, patronizing. I apologize. You dick. <laughs> Oh, well, we got to keep some acrimony, acrimony between the two. No, we don't. I <laughs> uh, got another Slim Jim ad. Got another Make Money Fast. <laughs> that thing creeps me out. Jesus. That's where uh, all the con artists of America have come from with comic. Maybe Wortham was right, man. Did you ever have any of these revolutionary war soldier things? I didn't, these? but you know what? I always, always liked the soldier ads, whether it was Revolutionary War or World War II or anything. I, I loved the art. was always really dynamic, and I always got a kick of it. Never did have any uh, historical soldiers. I used to have shitloads of army men because we used to melt them. You know, that's how we Yeah, I heard your toy episode. You were destructive. <laughs> we to were your we toys. were evil. How we never burned my grandfather's garage to the ground, I'll never know to this day. Or you know, worse yet, blow ourselves up or something. But yeah, we did. We literally uh we would have our little wars. We would get our, our thousands of little green army men and you had to douse them in gasoline. And then we would fight the wars by having a, a pack of matches, and we'd fling it back and forth at each other. Beaten. I mean, you know, beaten after, for them. Oh yeah. I mean, after you sit there all day long, either pouring gas on them or dipping them into a can of gas, and you are yourself are soaked with gas, and then you're sitting there lighting matches to throw back and forth at each other's army men. How the hell do you not set your hands on fire? Uh, how we never did that is absolutely beyond me. I mean, I, my guardian angel must have been working overtime. Okay, opposite of another hodgepodge of ads that has two muscle weightlifting ads and one B taller, so fuck you. Uh, is an ad I thought you'd like to talk about. Which one's that? The the limited collector? Yeah, edition ad I love time? both of these. Both of them are awesome. You got the uh, Superman versus the Flash with a beautiful uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez cover. I always like this. It's uh, it's sort of kind of an homage back to what issue of Superman is that? Is it 199, I think? Somewhere, Somewhere around there. I should know that because I've actually got that autographed by... Uh, uh, by uh, Murphy Anderson. Awesome. Yeah, it was totally awesome. But yeah, I like this. this, this I actually have this one because it collects all of the classic Superman Flash races. I like the first three, I think, and then the one above that is the Superman or super, excuse me, Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes. Now, as much as I'm a Superboy fan, I'm especially a fan of Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes, particularly from this era, particularly with of the Mike Grell era, and this is a Mike Grell cover. I don't actually like this cover very much. Superboy looks out of proportion somehow. It's it's supposed to be a perspective shot where he's like flying at and above you, like like he's going to fly over your head. But there's just something a little wonky to it. It just doesn't come off looking quite right. 
Uh, I've never liked Cosmic Boy's costume from this era. Yeah, it's creepy. He, he's, he's he's got, got a wearing a shirt. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's 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 like he it's like somehow he came across some historical tapes of Madonna and thought, yeah, mm-hmm. that's what I want. Ugh. Well, what's what's also funny on this cover? I'm almost positive that the first time I ever saw Tyrock was on this cover, and really, from almost all of my fandom of the Legion of Superheroes, still never knew who the hell is Tyrock. And actually, it all comes down to it's really a conspiracy about Tyrock. It's really a dirty, filthy story that I'm not even going to get into right now. But if you know the story behind Tyrock, it's both shocking, sad, creepy, weird, and hilarious all at the same time, but in a totally politically incorrect way. (laughs) It's one of those things that, you know, you either got to look back and laugh or look back and just be ashamed of (laughs) ashamed of people (laughs) like when you realize that the the actress that played mammy in gone with the wind was not invited to the uh premiere of the movie in atlanta oh man yeah that kind of embarrassment (laughs) yeah that kind of embarrassing yeah yeah exactly (laughs) it (laughs) oh man we're going to move away from that rather quickly. On the opposite page, I'm going to let you handle this one as well because it's got your one of your favorite TV shows ever. Actually, you know what? At least the I'm going to I'm going to table this only because this is going to come up again next issue. Okay, that's oh, fine. I think every show that's mentioned. What this is is an ad for DC TV series, but I'm almost positive that everything mentioned on this page is going to be mentioned next issue. And I know we're running a little bit long, and plus I think we need a few things to throw into next issue because I think we may be running a little light on we that one. We got a light one. This one's going to be heavy. The next one's going to be light. Uh, we got a reward. We'll pay you fifty dollars for this nineteen seventy-two penny. Uh, we do have a justice for all includes children, yes. which uh, holy shit! <laughs> this is like the one that is actually disturbing Mm -hmm. because you've got this really creepy guy i don't know if this dude if this dude's hitchhiking but man i want you see i want the other version of this story where superman sees the kid getting into the stranger's car and the cops chase him down superman grabs the car flies down i want the cops to lead the kids away while superman just beats the living shit out of this (laughs) because it wouldn't be very hard just like Punching the car, getting incredible, increasingly closer to him. Just, oh, man. But anyways, thanks, Superman. We think this car may have been stolen. Wait a second! <laughs> this is your concern? <laughs> <laughs> this is before Adam Walsh. That's all I'm going to say. And I don't say that as, as being humorous, by the way. Thanks, Superman. This We think this car may have been stolen. Come with us, boys. We want to ask a few questions. I don't know anything about a stolen car. I was hitchhiking and just got in. He's telling the truth, officer. I saw him get in. Okay, Superman, but will you do us one more favor? Will you and our young friend here come to the station as soon as possible to help us complete the investigation? Sure. Thanks, Superman. You sure saved me some hassle. Maybe more than you think. You just missed being arrested for car theft, but remember this. When you get into a car with a stranger, he could be a drunk or a criminal. Or just a bad driver, you would never know the difference. Until you had an accident, or worse. Hitchhiking is a risky business, and it's against the law in a lot of places. What he's leaving out there is, he could have raped and yeah. killed you. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I'm joking about it, but I'm not. 
I love this this ad though. This was in a lot. Oh, it's got Neil. Of, yeah, ads this it, was yeah. is my favorite uh, Justice for All Includes Children ad because of the gorgeous Neil Adams are. I mean, Neil Adams is, Neil Adam, is just. Uh, I'm sorry. Is Neil is Neil Adams the first guy to give Superman sideburns? Hmm. That's a damn good question. You know, I God, I don't know. Probably, probably, but I I couldn't I couldn't tell you. It seems like something he would do to kind of update the character right. subtly, because you know he's he's very much in the class. You know, he, he's an illustrator. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's his look. When he drew Batman, he drew the Batman costume, but it was a very just awesome looking version of the costume. Right. And, and I think it's the same way with Superman, where he's not so much reinventing the wheel like he did with Green Arrow, and he definitely improved upon Green Arrow's costume. What I like <laughs> I is love Superman, his Superman to me is just one of the most iconic of, of all drawn Superman, because for one thing, Neil Adams got him back to being he was he had an awesome physique he was muscular but he didn't have the barrel chested thing going on for yeah plus i like i simply like his superman i think most of all because he doesn't look like somebody's dad he looks like he's yeah. probably what early 30s at the most he yeah that that was always my problem with kurt swan's superman is that he looked like he was in his early 40s and i think that comes from being you know, starting to draw the character around the time that George Reeves was super right, and even to this point, Christopher Reeve hadn't come onto the scene yet. Right. So our only live-action version of it was a guy who was in his forties. Uh-huh. But when you make him look a little younger, it makes the character a little more dynamic. Exactly. Across from that, you have you loved our Legion issue. So now here's the DC Comics number twelve, Amazing World of DC Comics number twelve, Science Fiction Spectacular. Yeah, and it's uh, Mike Grellar again with uh, Superboy. I love that picture. I don't know what he's doing exactly. He's almost doing like a vampire style pose, like a. <laughs> You know, like with the with the curled fingers and all that, but it was really cool. And then uh, uh, Greenland, Hal Jordan, Greenland, and flying right next to him. I'm pretty sure that's also Grilled my Grail. Yeah. yeah, really. Yeah, it does. It just says right here, Legion and GL artist Mike Grell. Yeah, love now Mike the, Grell. Now on the opposite page, there's a book we're actually going to in the middle of it that we're going to mention next time. Mm-hmm. But what I love about this, it says first edition sale, and they have a bunch of different sets, five different ones that you can buy. And I love this concept that this merchandising company, NCG Merchandising, out of Dover, New Jersey, basically, I'm guessing they just bought a crap load of all of these number ones. Mm Mm-hmm and number twos and number threes, and they package them together. I would love, because basically, they're $4 a piece, and there's five of them. So 20 bucks plus $0.69 cents, uh, you know, shipping and handling. One set, you've got The Shadow number one by Mike Kaluta, uh-huh. Denny O'Neill, Demon number one, Super Team Family number one, Stalker number one. Another set is Shazam number one, Justice Incorporated, Strange Sports Stories, which I can give a shit about, <laughs> Black Magic. It's sports. I don't care. Yeah, me either. And Claw number one, uh, set C, Sandman, Shazam number three, Plop number one, Joker number one, and Champion Sports. Set D was Shazam number two, and the rest are number ones. You had Weird Worlds, Beowulf, 
green team spoon. <laughs> That's green wacky team. Oh shit God. right there. That is. Isn't that that Jack Kirby? Yeah. Thing? God, that thing is messed up. And uh, OMAC number one. And the final one was Tarzan Digest, Tor, Atlas, Batman, Fantasy, yeah. and Prez. Prez. 20 bucks. Yeah, there's some good stuff in there. Damn, The Shadow number one. Love that book. Justice Incorporated. I, re- I really need to read that because uh, not long I got our buddy uh, Will Shan- Sanchez to read Justice Incorporated Prestige mini that was – I think it was a two-issue mini done in like the mid to late 80s. But the original book it was based off of that Justice Incorporated, he says that's good too. He tracked that down and read it and said he liked it. I've never read the original series. I've only read that mini. Yeah, I'm rather excited. I recently came into possession of a hard cover that I think was put out in the 80s of the of the first couple issues of the Shadow series ah. uh, by O'Neill and Kaluta. And I just – I was I – was, it's just neat to run across because I like old trades. That's just me. Ah, uh, man, we got one more thing in this really, really packed episode. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and we are sorry, folks, but there was just uh, we really wanted to get to those emails. But our character profile—we got this. <gasps> You're done, missing Scott. the coolest ad in the entire book. Well, actually, because it's machine? not in the book, it's on the back cover. Oh, the green, green machine. machine. Oh, man. You were the pimp of the street if you had a green machine, man. Did you have one? I had one. I rode the shit oh. out of the green machine. I love these things. I see that they're actually back now, so I wonder if maybe they're not that big a deal. But it was one of those things when I was a kid, you know, that, that you know, most all the kids had, you know, their big wheel. But if you had the green machine, you were just that much cooler, you know? And, uh, yeah, I love that thing. God. They, they do make it look sexy. Hell yeah. It, and it really worked for guys 8, 9, 10 years old who really know how to ride. <laughs> it's got adjustable bucket seats, swivel action rear wheels, hug the road tip-proof design, racing slick tires, direct drive pedals. Dry. Well, you know, it was fun. The coolest thing about the green machine, I think, was that it literally couldn't tip over because of the way that it was designed and the and the wheels were placed and everything. So it was really fun was to find some dumbass that had a big wheel, right, and raced on a great big steep incline, get to the end, and then power slide. And when they got to the end, because you'd always beat them if you were in a green machine – They'd get to the bottom of the hill, and because you had done a really cool power slide, they'd try to do a really cool power slide, totally dump it and skin their ass all up. I loved it, man. I was an evil little kid. You're a bastard, Scott. (laughs) You know what I like to do when I was a kid, Mike? I like to hurt other children and make them look stupid. Absolutely. (laughs) I was one of those kids. But I am totally going to let you take this uh, this character profile. Well, we are running super, super, super long for this one. Um, our character spotlight this time around is going to be short and sweet. We are covering Earth 2 Superman. And honestly, I mean, if you know Superman, if you know the basic origin, then you pretty much know this character. Um, this one, you know, same deal as uh, the Superman we all know and love. Came from Krypton as a as an infant from, you know, the exploding planet and all that. Was raised, I believe this, this Superman's parents are John and Mary Kent, if I remember properly. Yes, also sometimes called Sarah and Eben, yeah. 
from the uh, from the TV series and the George Lothar novel, The Adventures of Superman. I want to read that one of these days. I still have not ever read that book. Do, do you have? No, one? I don't. I need to get it. You can borrow it. Yeah, I'd like to read that one. Yeah, I've got a copy of it here at the house. Um, Shocking. <laughs> About the biggest difference between this Superman and, say, the Earth One Superman is that, for one thing, he was never Superboy. He started his career. Um, as Superman as an adult after the death of his parents and his powers are way scaled back from the Earth-1 version you know he uh, um, you know he's the classic you know faster than a speeding bullet more powerful than a locomotive able to leap tall buildings because he couldn't fly for a, a whole lot of his career he was just able to leap an eighth of a mile and he wasn't quite the the super invulnerable you know, godlike being that the Earth won. You know, this was not a planet juggling Superman. You know, this wasn't a Superman that could actually move the Earth out of orbit, you know, if a meteor was coming to smash it or something like that. He was much more, you know, pretty much the classic Golden Age Superman, dialed up a little bit stronger than, than the, you know, the original stuff appearing, you know, in the earliest stories, but still pretty much the same guy. The book that's largely considered to be the first, um, mention of him specifically as the Earth 2 Superman is uh, Justice League of America number 73 from 1969. That's the first one that actually refers to him, you know, as far as what Earth he lives on. But but he's, you know... Now you had said, I remember you were saying a while back that you took exception to the Earth 2 Superman being called the Golden Age Superman, and I, 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 I see your point with that, and I pretty much agree with it but i'm trying to remember exactly what the what the thing was now just that it's basically in the golden age after a certain period of time clark kent worked at the daily planet right and his boss was perry white right and the conceit of the earth 2 superman is that his he worked for the daily star and that his editor until he took over was george taylor now that's cool because it's referencing the original original superman Mm -hmm. so in, in a way he is the true golden age superman as the one that first appeared in 1938 but that means after like after his first like half dozen adventures it's not him anymore right exactly so it's just it's basically like everything else about earth 2 is that it, it it is the golden age characters but kind of not right and, and, and it's a very fine line. It's not something that I will swear on a stack of Bibles and gut you, you know, in an alleyway if you disagree with me about, because it is such a fine point. It's just, you ever get that, like, one thing that sticks in your mind and you can't get it out once you've thought it? <laughs> You're talking to Mr. Anal Retentive. Of course I have. <laughs> Anal Retentive is hyphenated. Um and that joke goes over Scott's head completely. No, I got very it. Oh, okay, very I'm good. I'm sorry. It wasn't funny. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to come right out and say that, but, you know. You're not funny, Bailey. Shut it's up. It's not that it's um, not funny. It's that I've, I think I've heard it about a, a billion times, so it's just kind of lost think, some punch to it. I, I think that the main thing to think about the Earth 2 Superman at this point is that while we've seen him, everything that would become, like, quintessential about this Earth 2 Superman has not been discussed yet. Right. It's kind of like Power Girl. Right. So, who he's married to, how he got the job as, 
you know, editor of the Daily Star, all of that has yet to be dealt with. Right. So really, when this says the return of the Golden Age Superman, it is literally that. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it's it's this is this is pre everything else. So it's kind of hard to think about him in in those terms because of all the other crap that's in my head. It's like Dr. Fate. You know, with everything that's been done to Dr. Fate, it's hard to think, well, what was it like just in the Golden Age as we're discussing it now? Because I think one of the great things about these character profiles is that we're not jumping ahead. Right. Because later on, we'll come back to them. Mm-hmm. Definitely going to do that with Power Girl. I'm looking forward to uh, that. At some yeah, point. Being so. able to add to their to their profiles. Well, I, I forgot to mention... At the beginning of the episode, and I guess it was a good thing because uh, we're at Superman, so maybe this is a good point to discuss this. You remember uh, we got an email a while back from Frankie Adiego where he was asking us about uh, retcons and what did we consider to be the first retcon. Well, as I was doing a little uh, digging around on the Internet today, I happened to stumble across something that uh, was talking about the fact that they considered uh, Superman number one from 1939 to contain the first retcon. I'd agree with that. Do you know what they're talking about? They said something about how his origin was tweaked just slightly from action number one that had just been a few months prior to that, and I'm trying to remember what the difference was. There wasn't really so much a tweak in the origin, more so that Superman number one is the director's cut of Action Comics. Ah, yeah. The Superman story of Action Comics number one. Right. They added more material because they cut so much because it was supposed to be a comic strip originally. Mm -hmm. So in Action Comics number one, you have like the briefest like saying, you know, he was, you know, rocketed from a dying world, blah, 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 blah. And then you're right into him taking what's-her-name to the governor's house. Right. Whereas in Superman number one, you have the couple finding him you have him growing up you have him discovering his abilities and then you know they die and he becomes superman and he goes to the daily planet i don't know if it would, now that i think about it i don't know if i'd consider that so much a retcon as a fleshing out right of the basic story because nothing was really contradicted there i'd have to i'd have to read both again yeah, that's what I need to do as well because I'm I'm thinking this article I was looking at specifically referenced the origin of the character having changed between Action 1 and Superman number 1 and I'd have to look at that to see exactly what they're what they're talking about what they're referring to. But that's where they were saying that uh, that the first retcon was contained. But I just thought it was worth mentioning. Somebody uh, may be able to uh, to do a little more looking into that and and tell us what the what the exact thing is. If I had had time before the before we started recording, I would have done it myself. But it was literally something I spotted just moments before we started to record so I just didn't have time to look it up and to wrap it all up you can find this issue All Star Comics number 62 reprinted in Justice Society volume 1 trade paperback you've been listening to Tales of the Justice Society of America hosted by Scott H. Gardner and Michael R. Bailey you can email the show by writing to talesofthejsa at gmail.com you can find the show at two, yes, count them, two websites. The first being www.fortressofbailey2.com. 
You can also find the show and subscribe to it through iTunes at www.2TrueFreaks.Libson.com. Scott has two other podcasts that he co-hosts on a weekly basis. The first is Two True Freaks, which Scott hosts with his childhood friend and former weightlifting partner of Lou Ferrigno, Chris Honeywell. Then there's Back to the Bins, which Scott co-hosts with a cavalcade of podcasting's finest hosts. Both of those can be found at www.2TrueFreaks.Libson.com. Mike has two other podcasts he hosts or co-hosts as well. The first is Views from the Long Box, which Mike hosts all by his lonesome for the most part. And you can find that at www.ViewsFromTheLongBox.com. Then there's the From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which Mike hosts with Jeffrey Taylor. That show can be found at both www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailytude.com. Thank you for listening, and join us next week as we present more Tales of the Justice Society of America. Mm-hmm.